Well, it was a Wednesday evening on November of 1979. A young woman in her mid-twenties found herself, her name was Ina, she found herself in a in a church, the Emmanuel Gospel Church in Newington, Connecticut. See, Ina was an ethnic Jew. She had spent a lot of time in her teenage years in, the, in an Orthodox Jewish synagogue, but as she had grown a little bit older, she had become a, a complete skeptic. She no longer believed that her Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, our Old Testament, was the Word of God. She didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, certainly, and she certainly didn't even believe that there even was going to be a Messiah, and she did not believe that she was a sinner. The reason that Ina was there that night is because her sister, who had become a Christian, had been nagging her to come to church with her, and she thought, well, what better time for me to just go ahead and get this out of the way than a Wednesday night, not a normal church service. I'll just go there, be done with it, and so that's why Ina was there that evening. Well, the pastor of the church, uh, he was not the first person to come up to the pulpit. They actually had a missionary from Israel there that day. And as the missionary from Israel stepped behind the pulpit, he started to report about all of the Jews in the land of Israel that were converting to Christianity. Well, Ina started to be deeply offended by that. So by the time the pastor got up behind the pulpit, who was the next speaker, her heart was as cold as ice. It was hard. She did not want to hear anything that he had to say. The pastor takes his Bible, and he simply just opens it up, and he starts to read. These are the words that Ina heard that night. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As the pastor continued to read, Ina's heart became more and more hardened and more and more cold because what she thought in her mind, and she thought accurately, she thought here they go again, teaching about this false Messiah who has come and been crucified for the sins of his people. The pastor finishes reading, sets his Bible down, and he looks up into the audience where Ina is sitting, and he says, I've just read to you from the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 53. All of a sudden, in an instant, Ina breath was taken away from her. She was dumbfounded because you see she had just identified Jesus in the Jewish scriptures of her youth. Scripture, that particular scripture was written 700 years before Jesus ever walked on this earth. All of a sudden, Ina was, was faced with evidence that demanded a response on her part, that demanded a verdict. Well, today in Acts chapter 13, Paul is going to be, to be speaking in a Jewish synagogue, and he's going to essentially be doing the same thing. He is going to be providing evidence, like Ina heard, that is going to demand a verdict, demand a response from the people that are going to be there. Now, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ today, 
there are two reasons that that you need to listen to this message. One, you need to listen to it for by God's grace in order to strengthen your faith. Because this message, Paul, what Paul is going to be doing is he is going to be showing us that the Christian faith is not a faith that is a blind faith, but it is a faith that is based on biblical evidence that is both historically accurate and logically consistent. And second reason you need to listen to this is I think Paul is going to be giving us here a model for us to follow as we're talking with people about the gospel, especially people who have at least some familiarity with the Bible, regardless of whether they believe it or not. And so I just want to encourage you to listen for those reasons. For If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. First of all, we want to we want to welcome you. We are so glad that you're here. Today is actually a great day for you to be here. Um, and there is one particular reason that you need to listen today. And that reason is this. That God has raised a dead man from the grave, proving that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. And that has eternal implications for you, just like it does for me. And so I want to encourage you to, to listen up to what Paul says here today in this passage. And so the main thing that I want us to come away with today, if you take nothing else out of this, is this. That the evidence is in, Jesus is the Messiah, and he commands you to believe. Otherwise, you will perish. You will perish. And so just to put us in context here, if you remember, we've been walking through the book of Acts. We've seen how Jesus is, is growing his church through the spirit-empowered witness of the gospel proclamation of both to the, his apostles as well as individual church members who have been scattered. We've seen how the church has, has grown from Jerusalem and out to Judea and then Samaria. And now we're to the place where we're moving to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you remember if two weeks ago, if you were here, you may recall that we talked about how all of this, this phase got started. It got started in a prayer meeting. A prayer meeting where the Holy Spirit said to set apart Barnabas and Saul for Paul for the, for the work that he had for them. And so they, they prayed for them and they fasted for them and then they sent them off on this journey. And last week, Pastor Jeff shared with us about the first leg of that journey, which was to the island of Cyprus and how they traveled throughout the whole island of Cyprus. They went in Jewish synagogues. They proclaimed the gospel. You may remember when they got to Paphos, they they uh, encountered some pretty fierce opposition from Elmaeus, the, the, uh, the, the magician, but they were able to overcome that. And as a result of all of that, by the power of the gospel, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, believed. Well, today in our passage, you'll see that we've left We've left the island of Cyprus, we've left uh, uh, Paphos, and we're sailing to Perga. Now, Perga is on uh, what would be today, would be modern, the coast of modern-day Turkey. And so when they get to Perga, it says that John left them. So this is Barnabas' cousin that they had encountered in Cyprus, that he was going on, on this mission with them. Well, John leaves them, and we're not told why John left them. Uh, we're going to find out in a couple chapters uh, that Paul doesn't think that that's a very legitimate reason that he left, and that's going to cause a bit of a rift between uh, him and Barnabas, and so we'll tackle that when we get there. But nonetheless, John leaves, and then, and then Paul and Barnabas, they embark from Perga, where they had landed, and they make a journey all the way to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, that's about 100 miles apart. Chances are they probably did this by foot. And let's just say that this journey is not uh, uh, fields of grass filled with daisies. We're talking about rugged terrain, 
the Taurus Mountains. We're talking about barren wilderness. We're talking about a, a place that was known to, to be filled with bandits. And so this was a dangerous journey they made, 100 miles to Antioch and Pisidia. Nonetheless, by God's grace, they made it there. And as they made it there, it says that they went into the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, one of the things that we learn about in this passage is, is what they do on, on a Sabbath day in the Jewish synagogue. It says that they read from the law and the prophets. Now, that is our Old Testament. Okay? And so what they would do is they would go and they would take out the law. And they would take the scroll and they would roll it out. This is, this is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they would read portions of that scripture. And then they would do the same with the prophets. So Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah, Zephaniah, all of the prophets. They would take it out and read portions of that. And then what would happen after that is that someone would come up and give a homily or a sermon of encouragement based on those scriptures that had just been read. Well, when Luke records for us that they had sent messengers, the ruling elders of the synagogue had sent messages to a message to Paul and Barnabas to see if they had a word of encouragement, what they were asking them to do is to give the sermon that day. And so as we know, Paul takes them up on that offer. Now, I want you to imagine just for a second that you are there in that synagogue on that day and that you are an Israelite. Uh, Jeff mentioned last week uh, that messianic expectations were very high during this time so people were expecting the messiah to come so here's here's what the situation is for these particular people that would have been there today they would have been living outside of the promised land there was nobody on the throne of david and they were under the control of the roman empire and so this is their situation, and they're expecting this Messiah to come. In 2 Samuel 7, God had promised David this, this forever king, this descendant that would come, that would have this eternal throne, and that he would have a kingdom that would last forever. And so just to give you a picture, this is, this is what you're expecting. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so you're expecting that Messiah to come. That's, that's, that's what you're expecting. And so when Paul steps up behind the pulpit, I want you to just imagine that that's, that's what you're expecting. And so in verses 16 through 26, Paul begins his sermon by giving a brief sketch of the family history of your ancestors. Right, And so what he's doing, and unfortunately for the sake of time, we're not going to have time to, to really delve into verses 16 to 26. But what he is doing in this section is he is recounting their family history in order to establish how faithful God has been to his promises, despite the fact that the people, their ancestors, had been faithless. And so he does that by by going through their family history and what he's trying to get to as he's going through this family history. He's going from Abraham, which is where their, their family history starts, 
and he's going all the way to David. He wants to get to David because the Messiah was promised to David specifically and most clearly. And so he does that, and, and he says, after he gets to David, and he's, he says, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And so you think about that. What are you going to be like if you're there and you've got these high messianic expectations? You're going to be on the edge of your seat. Because you're like, okay, I've been expecting the Messiah. You're telling me that the Messiah is here? Tell me more. Prove it to me. And that's exactly what Paul does. He continues by sharing the message of salvation and compelling evidence that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And he's the Messiah, as he says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those who among you who fear God to us has been sent this message of this salvation. He is the Messiah, not only for the Jews, but also for the God-fearing Greeks that are there, which are Gentiles. And I would say that that has incredible bearing for you, most of us that are in this room today, because most of us in this room today are not Jews. And so here's what he does. He's going to provide this compelling evidence. I want you to see this. Here he goes. He's going to offer Exhibit A, pre-written history. The intricate details of Jesus' crucifixion, death, and resurrection were written hundreds of years before those events ever took place. That's verses 27 through 30. And he says this, Paul is going to summarize the basis of the message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And so the message of salvation, he's not interpreted what this message means yet, but the message of salvation is simply this, that the Jewish Messiah has come. He has been rejected by his people. Even though he was innocent, he was condemned and sentenced to a criminal's death by crucifixion. After he died, he was placed in a tomb. And then God raised him from the dead. And so that is the message of salvation that Paul is bringing them. And if that's not amazing enough, Paul says this, that this message of salvation, these things that actually took place in our lifetime in Jerusalem, that this message of salvation was actually written down hundreds of years before it ever happened. Hundreds of years before it ever happened. So I want you to see this, just like Ina heard that night. I want you to hear this message of salvation, this pre-written history that Paul is talking about. Uh, in The Messiah, this is what would happen to the Messiah. Seven, this, is, this passage was written 700 years before he ever came, before Jesus ever walked this earth. I want you to listen in just two chapters of the Old Testament, Isaiah 52 and 53. Listen to the Messiah's rejection. He was despised and rejected by men, that he would be condemned though he was innocent. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, 
Listen for his brutal suffering. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Listen to his crucifixion before crucifixion was ever even invented. He was pierced for our transgressions. Listen to his burial in a tomb which criminals that were crucified were not buried in tombs. (laughs) And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Listen to his resurrection. Now in order to understand this, we have to understand that in the ceremonial law of Moses, a guilt offering was brought was an animal. And that animal was brought and it was sacrificed. It was killed in the place of the person who was bringing that sacrifice. And so this, what he's speaking of here, is not an animal. He's speaking of a person being sacrificed as a guilt offering. He says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, death. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. All of this, all of this message of salvation written down 700 years before any of it ever took place. Now listen, if you're here today and you are not a Christian because you think that Christianity is just one of many equal ways to God, and that you think that the, the Bible is just one of many equal religious books like the Quran of Islam or the Vedas of Hinduism or the Sutras of Buddhism, I want to urge you and encourage you to reconsider the evidence because there is no other book that is doing what this book is doing. See, the Bible contains over 1,800 prophecies. Many of those prophecies are about Jesus, written hundreds of years before he ever came to this earth, and many of them were fulfilled during his lifetime. I want to just give you a sampling of those. Dr. Stephen Lawson recounts these fulfilled prophecies, that he would be spit upon and scarred, that his hands and his feet would be nailed to the cross, that he would be forsaken by God, that he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would be mocked. Gall and vinegar would be offered to him. His garments would be parted. Lots would be cast for his clothing. He would be numbered among the transgressors. He would intercede for his murderers. He would die, but not a bone in his body would be broken. He would be pierced long before crucifixion was ever even invented. That he would be buried with the rich. That his flesh would not see corruption. That he would be raised from the dead. That he would ascend back to the right hand of, of God the Father. All of this recorded hundreds of years before Jesus ever entered the world. And many of these prophecies are fulfilled not by his friends, but by his enemies who stand to lose the most by their fulfillment. You see, there's no other book that's doing what this book is doing because this book is authored by God. And only God knows, not only knows the future, but actually has uh, providentially directs the future in order to accomplish his appointed purposes. And he has written some of that down for us in this book. And so exhibit A is pre-written history. Exhibit B that Paul offers. Trustworthy eyewitnesses in verse 31. Trustworthy eyewitness accounts. To the ministry, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to start in verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Who are now his witnesses to the people. 
So the content of this message of salvation is not only written in a book hundreds of years before it happened, it actually is, has been attested to by trustworthy eyewitnesses. So what would make a witness trustworthy? Well, first thing would be you would want somebody that actually was there. I don't want to hear that your grandma saw Elvis alive from the dead and that you believe it because of that. I want to know that you've been there. You've, you've, you've witnessed it with your senses, your eyes, your ears, your, your sense of touch. You want to know that. That's what Paul says here. He says that uh, the witnesses came up with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now, that was the, that was the terrain that Jesus, uh, he, he, went, he, was, he was doing his ministry and his three years of ministry during, during that time. And so what Paul's point is, is these men were actually with Jesus for a good part of his ministry. So they witnessed his miracles. They witnessed him raising people from the dead. They witnessed him speaking and the actual forces, forces of nature actually obeying him. But not only that, it says they went to Jerusalem, which he's speaking of those things that actually happened in Jerusalem. They were there when Jesus was arrested, even though he was innocent in the Garden of Gethsemane. Many of them were there, like John, the Apostle John, for instance, when he was crucified, they saw him pinned to the cross. John heard him say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He heard them, him say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He heard him say, it is finished. He saw him take his last breath. He saw the spear from the soldier go into his side. But most importantly, they had seen the resurrected Jesus. They actually saw Jesus alive from the dead. They actually ate with him. They actually touched him, touched his hands, touched his side. And so this is, they heard his teaching. They heard the Great Commission, which is exactly what they were doing. And the great part is, is that right here, we have those firsthand accounts in our New Testament, in the Gospels. And so we have those accounts even today. Even John, the Apostle John, here's what he says about speaking of the resurrected Jesus. He says, that which we have was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. You get the picture, first-hand account. Second thing that would make somebody a, a really good witness, or a really good witness that you would be trustworthy, would be somebody who, uh, would, it would have, it would be, the, the event that happened would have been witnessed by more than one person, right? And so this is what Paul says here, that those, which is plural, those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. He's speaking specifically of, of the disciples, right? The 12 disciples minus Judas. Paul writes in actually 1 Corinthians 15 that actually after Jesus arrived, uh, resurrected from the dead, he appeared to eat over 500 people at one time. And so there's been a lot of witnesses that have seen this Jesus. And most of these people were still alive and they could be interviewed by those people that were in Paul's audience that day. And the third thing is that would make somebody trustworthy is if the witnesses witnessed the miracle more than once. And that's what Paul says. He says that, Paul says that for many days, and for many days means 40, if you look at Acts chapter 1, for many days the resurrected Jesus appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And so there was multiple occasions that they actually witnessed this. Now, I know, and you know, that just because somebody claims to have seen something doesn't mean that they have actually seen it, right? Plenty of people claim to have seen Bigfoot. That doesn't mean they've really seen Bigfoot. Maybe they have. I don't know. But So what, what is the deal here? It, did the disciples 
really see the resurrected Jesus? Because that's what we believe as Christians. Well, traditionally, traditionally, there have been three theories that have been offered. No, they didn't see him because they were lying. Two, no, they didn't see them, though they thought they had seen him because they were hallucinating. Or three, yes, they indeed did see the resurrected Jesus. So let's just take these one at a time. So does it make logical sense that they were lying? Well, according to the Bible, as well as some extra biblical sources that are trustworthy in early history, these men that Paul is talking about that came from, with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem, 10 of them were actually martyred for their belief in the resurrection. What that means is they would not deny that they had seen and heard and touched the resurrected Jesus. Now, plenty of people will die for something that they sincerely believe is true. Think 9-11, right? But how many people do you know that are going to die for something that they know is a lie? Now, multiply that by 10, and you'll see how Unlikely it is, out of all the ten that were martyred for their belief that Jesus did, indeed, they had seen him and touched him and heard him, you can see how ridiculous it would be that, especially considering that some of them actually died really slow and painful, excruciating deaths, that nobody would have let the cat out of the bag, that it was all a sham. And so, at the very least, we could say that at least these disciples thought that they had seen the resurrected Jesus, which leads us to theory two. They thought they did, but they were hallucinating. So I'm not going to assume that most of us in this room have hallucinated before, but I will assume that most of us in this room have dreamed before. How many times have you dreamed something, then gone to work or gone to school, and it was the most amazing thing happened? There's like 10 other people that dreamed the same dream, or better yet, 500 people that had dreamed the same exact dream. Well, you see how ridiculous it would be because the reason that is is dreams are personalized. That means they're personal to you. They're individualized. You don't dream the same dreams as other people do. And so secondly, the hallucination theory doesn't explain the physical aspect of what these disciples experienced. They actually uh, touched Jesus, right? You remember Thomas? Thomas didn't believe. He wouldn't believe his own eyes that he had seen Jesus. Jesus says, come over here and touch my hands that have been pierced and my side that has been pierced. And Thomas goes over and he does that. And what happens? He believes, right? Because he had touched the resurrected Jesus. And so the only explanation that makes any logical sense is that these men did indeed see the resurrected Jesus alive from the dead. The third thing I want you to see is the exhibit C. The resurrection demonstrates that Jesus is the promised Messiah. This is verses 32 to 37. And we bring you the good news. That what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And so what Paul's doing here, he's already proved that that Jesus rose from the dead. 
Now he's proving that this resurrection from the dead actually fulfills the the promises that were made to David. And so we have to understand what were these promises that he's talking about that were made to David. Well, in 2 Samuel 7, God speaks promises two specific things about this Messiah that's going to come. One, he's going to have such a close, intimate, personal relationship with this king that's coming from the line of David that he's going to be like a father to him, and this king is going to be like a son to him. Indeed, he will be the son of God, which is a messianic title. And so the second thing that he promised him was that he would have a a king that would come from his line that would be a forever king. That means he would never die. That means he was immortal. And so we can read these. I want you to hear these things for yourself in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 12. Listen for those two. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is God speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so when Paul quotes Psalm 2, which if you remember from our psalm reading today, was a psalm about the Messiah. What he's doing is he is proving this first point. This first point that, uh, that, that this unique son that was promised to David is indeed Jesus. That the resurrection proves that. And so think about this. So Jesus in his lifetime, in his ministry, he had claimed that he was this son that was promised to David. But then he died. But then God vindicated that he was indeed this son by raising him from the dead. The idea here is God doesn't vindicate people who lie. Right? So he raised him from the dead. This is Paul's point, I think, in Romans 1.4. He says, and speaking of Jesus, and was declared, Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so when Paul quotes Psalm 2, I want to just set that in context again for you so we can understand what what he's doing here. It says, starting in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set or installed... My king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So Paul is pointing to the fact that not only did the resurrection vindicate Jesus' claim that he was the son, but the resurrection was actually his installation onto that throne that had been promised to David. And so here's the deal. Jesus has always been the eternal son that's always reigned, even before he came to this earth. But now he is the eternal son who has been installed on through the resurrection, installed on the throne of David at the right hand of the father. He is that son that is on that throne now as the God man, the the one who came from the line of David. And so that's what he's doing there. The next thing he does is he's, he's quoting Isaiah 55, 3 and 16, uh, Psalm 16, 10 to establish that Jesus is that 
forever king. That's the second part of Second uh, Samuel, the, the promises made to David. So in order for a person to qualify to be the Messiah, there is a basic line item that needs to be on their resume. They need to be immortal. Okay? So Jesus, through this resurrection, he says... I will give you, this is Isaiah 55, 3, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. What are the holy and sure blessings of David? It was simply this. That David was going to have any, a descendant that comes from his line, God promised, that would sit on a forever throne. Again, that he would have a kingdom that would last forever. And the second thing he does is he quotes Psalm 16, 10, which is written by David himself. You will not let your holy one see corruption. Okay, so David writes the psalm. What Paul is saying is that God is speaking through the pen of David. God is speaking about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Because the reality is, is David, King David, his body, right now, if it hasn't already decomposed, it is decomposing, right? But Jesus, he died as well. But he didn't stay in the grave long enough for his body to decompose. His body is, has not seen corruption. He has been risen to never die again. And so the promise was for a forever king. And the resurrection demonstrates that that forever king is indeed Jesus. And then lastly, what I want you to see in verses 38 through 41. is Paul is calling them to a verdict. Calling them to a response. He says this, the verdict is this. Believe and receive forgiveness of sins or scoff and perish. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Three things I want you to notice here. First, Paul's interpreting what these events that happened in Jerusalem, he's interpreting that for them. He uses this word freed. He says, by him, Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This word freed actually means justified. It's a legal term that means to be declared righteous, like in a court of law. And so what he's saying is that the law of Moses, what it's intended to do, it cannot justify you any more than a speed limit sign can justify me. You know what a speed limit sign does for me when I'm driving down the road? It tells me one of two things. Either A, I'm breaking the law, or B, I have broken the law, right? So it is with the law. The law is meant to make us conscious of our sin and our guilt because sin blinds us to the reality of how messed up we really are. And so what Paul is doing here is he is, he is telling us what the, the, the law of Moses is intended to do is to make us conscious of that sin and guilt. Listen to what he says in Romans 3, 19 and 20 about the function of the law. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so when the day of judgment comes, every thought, every word, every deed is going to be on a rap sheet for you. And it's going to be on that evidence table in the heavenly courtroom. 
And the divine judge who is righteous is going to come in and he is going to judge according to his righteous law. And what that's going to mean is there is nobody that's going to be able to raise their hand and say, well, yeah, but because what the law is meant to show us in the here and now before that day comes in the here and now is that we we already know what the verdict is going to be and that there is nothing that we can do to change it. But the gospel is what God has done to change it without compromising his righteousness. And so what is the gospel? The gospel is this, that God the Father sent his son into this world. He was born under the law in order to represent his people who were under the law. He fulfilled all righteousness, which means he lived a perfect life. And so if he was standing in that heavenly courtroom on that day of judgment, guess what he would hear? Righteous. Righteous. But even though he was righteous, he went, he was condemned. He was condemned by his own people and he was sent to a cross. And all of this was according to the plan of God. Essentially what he did when he went to the cross is he went into that heavenly courtroom. He grabbed the rap sheets of his people and he said, these belong to me. And he goes to the cross and he bears the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the penalty of God for the sins of his people. And after he has finished paying it, the infinite wrath of God for his people, he says it is finished. In that moment, proverbially speaking, what has happened is for his people, those rap sheets that he went to the heavenly courtroom to get, they're nailed to the cross. And it shows the sin and it shows the guilt, but now it shows a big fat stamp in his blood that says paid in full. He was laid in a tomb, dead as a doornail, but God raised him to life again. And so here is the, the point that Paul is making, where he, his second point is there is a necessary response that's required in order for you to experience this forgiveness of sins. It's not just automatic. The necessary response, he says, is to believe. To believe. Believe is not just a mere intellectual acknowledgement, not just a mere intellectual assent that, yeah, I think all of that's true. No, it's a radical trust. It's a radical trust that you recognize that now Jesus is your, your life. He is your savior. He is your only hope. And it's, so it's a, a, it's a change of heart that results in you believing now that your only hope to be right with God is what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf and that you are committing to by the power of his spirit to turn from sin and to live for him for the rest of the days of your life. The moment you do that, that is when you will receive the forgiveness of sins. And that is when you will be imputed with the very righteousness of Jesus. How he lived perfectly for you on your account. That will be credited to your account. And that's what Paul's saying. And then lastly, Paul talks about the warning against unbelief. Warning against unbelief. Paul quotes Habakkuk 1.5, which was a warning from God to Israel that if they failed to repent, that he was going to send the Babylonians to bring a swift judgment upon them. And so he says, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if anyone tells you. So to scoff means to despise. See, there are many people who despise the gospel. Because to a prideful heart, 
a prideful heart thinks that it doesn't need somebody to die for their sins because it thinks that it can stand before God and everything be a-okay between them and God. It doesn't recognize how messed up it really is and how far from the righteousness of God they've fallen short. And so Paul is saying, look, you need, to, you need to recognize the graciousness of God in this moment that he's so gracious to give you this warning. If you despise my gospel, you will perish. You will perish. And so this all this culminates to a call that I think that Jonathan Edwards so, so clearly puts out in one of his most famous sermons. He says this, And now you have an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. You see, that door right now is open. In this moment, it's open. But that doesn't mean it's going to be open in the next moment. And so if you have not trusted in this Messiah where the evidence God has provided such clear evidence that indeed He is the Messiah, He is the King, He is on His throne, do not despise such a great salvation that has been offered to you. So I want to end today with giving you the rest of Ina's story. Ina walked into the Emmanuel Gospel Church that night, not believing that the Bible was the Word of God, not believing that there was a Messiah, much less that Jesus was the Messiah, not believing that she was a sinner. And through the preaching and reading, in fact, of God's Word, by His grace, the Gospel came to her in a way that had never come to her before in power through the conviction of the Holy Spirit and she recognized her desperate need for a Savior. And so Ina walked out that night a new creation. In one hour, God changed her heart so much that she believed indeed that the Bible is the Word of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that she is a sinner, and that now she has a Savior who is her refuge and her king forever and ever and ever. Do not neglect such a great salvation that's being offered to you because the evidence is in. Jesus is the Messiah and he commands you to believe. Otherwise, you will perish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful today for your word, your word that is not sugarcoat anything. <laughs> your word that is so gracious to tell us that, that you've sent us a savior. You've sent us your law to show us that we're liars. <laughs> we're adulterers. We're thieves. We're idolaters. All of those things, Lord. Not for the purpose that we might be condemned but for the purpose that we might see that, oh, we are so in need of a savior and you have sent us one in the Lord Jesus. So I pray if there's anyone here today that has not trusted in him, Lord, will you bring salvation to that soul? And for the saints that are here today, will you bring strengthening to their faith today? We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.